Welcome to episode 80 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, staying inside has its benefits. No risk but no reward. On today's top five list, we'll help you put together your risk management plan. For today's Summit Gear Review, a lightweight, stuffable day pack that's the perfect stowaway for your next backpacking trip. Next on today's Backpack Hack of the Week, we'll explain the benefits of a gear list complete with all the geeky details. And we'll leave you with a little trail wisdom that may help you slow down just a little. All this and that's about it today on the first 40 miles. In a few past episodes, the topic of risk has come up and it's one of my soapbox topics. I say over and over, I think that uh, people in general do a poor job of evaluating risk. And this isn't just with backpacking. This is with, you know, driving on the road compared with flying, things like that. Right. So, for example, someone might see a kid playing in a tree and say, oh, that's risky and have the kid get down out of the tree. On the other hand, the same person might be just fine with eating fast food every day for lunch. And it's like, wait a minute. I mean, look at the frequency and look at the severity And the fast food every day for lunch is probably a riskier behavior than the occasional kid climbing in the tree. But we just have a hard time really having an objective way of looking at risk. And so we we assign too much risk to things that really aren't that risky. And then there's other things in our lives where we basically don't even think about the risk at all. We assign no risk to those things, even though over our lifetime, they are in fact very risky. One way to think about risk is uh, in these two components. One would be frequency or likelihood or probability. So, you know, how likely is it to happen to me? And then the other would be the magnitude or the severity or the impact. So if it does happen, then how bad will it be? Or technically, you could also say, how good will it be? I guess there's good risk. (laughs) But anyway, you know, the, the probability versus the impact. And then you can take actions to mitigate that risk. You could try to avoid the risk, like, I will not go backpacking. Well, that avoids one risk. It probably brings other risks into your life uh, through lack of exercise. But anyway, you know, you'll avoid that risk if you just don't go on the trip at all. You can try to control risk. So, you know, I'll take trekking poles to help stabilize me because I know I'm prone to falling. That's a good way to control risk. You can accept risk. You can just say, well, yeah, it might snow, and I'm just going to accept that. I'm just going to go on this trip anyway. And finally, you can transfer risk. You could send your friend out on the backpacking trip instead. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, usually risk is transferred like through insurance. You know, you buy an insurance plan, and and so you're transferring the risk to someone else. Is there backpacking insurance? I have no idea. (laughs) We'll have to look that up. It's a business idea for someone. (laughs) Right. Well, I wonder what thru-hikers do. Oh, good Uh, question. You know, they would have, I guess they would just have their standard health insurance, but do they also have some additional, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, thru-hiker insurance? 
Yeah, and then you could add things to the policy, you know, like the bear risk and the yeah. um, Giardia, you know. Right. If you die from a bear, then you get then your your survivors get a hundred thousand dollars and it, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> but I do think about risk a lot, especially when we go into bear country, because that's a risk I'm learning to be more comfortable with because I realize that it's really a long shot to even see a bear and then, you know, to have a face-to-face encounter with a bear is even more rare and then to have that turn violent is even more rare it just kind of drills down till it's just almost not even a risk at all right the likelihood is so small even in bear country plus you can take actions to mitigate that risk yeah, you can exactly. protect your food and stay together as a group and you'll be safe well how do you determine your risk level before you leave I think there are some important questions to ask before you go on a trip. And one of them is, what is your skill level? And if you know where you're going, you know what skills are important. So you can evaluate yourself in terms of the skills that you know are important for that trip. Lately, I mean, it's spring in Oregon. And that means that the poison oak is coming out very lush this year. I mean, it just looks so pretty. And it looks so dangerous. (laughs) And so the question to ask yourself about your skill level is, can I identify poison oak if I'm going to be in a place where it will be prevalent? One of the nice things about hiking on some of the more popular trails is there are trail signs that will warn you of possible risk. So even if you go out on a trail that's maybe a little more difficult than what you're prepared to handle, They'll have signs up that will warn you. Like when we were on the Timberline Trail, anytime there was a a water crossing, it gave really clear instructions as to how to cross the water safely. You know, you're supposed to unbuckle your pack so that if you do fall in the water, you're going to be able to take off your pack quickly and not be dragged down by it. So those signs are really helpful. Another question that you can ask is, what is the trail difficulty? And a lot of times when you look up information on trails online, it will say what the difficulty level is, and it will give some more clues as to what things you'll probably encounter on the trail. Usually trail difficulty will uh, include things like the steepness of the trail or the, uh, the clearness. Does that make sense? The, how clear the path is? Right. How, how rustic it is. Right. <laughs> Some paths are really wide and clear. Others are a little bit more tricky to find, and you'll have to find your path using landmarks called cairns. Or the trail may be on the side of a cliff and have a a cable that you're holding onto. That kind of changes your perspective. Yeah, that ups the difficulty level and the risk. Another thing you'll want to consider when you're doing your risk assessment is what are the conditions? You know, a trail in the summertime is fantastic. But that same trail under different conditions in the wintertime turns into a a completely different experience. And when we were planning our trip to the Wallawas, this was the deciding factor that made us cut and go somewhere else. Because when the weather report started forecasting snow, we said, okay, let's compare the conditions, you know, a foot of snow to our skill level or what we've prepared for. And there there was no match. (laughs) So we said, okay, we're going to have to go somewhere else. Another question that you can ask is, what do recent trail reports say? The earth is always changing. So these trails that you've loved for years, they change over time and they may not last forever. I know there's a trail that Josh hiked on when he was younger and it completely got washed out by a mudslide. The trail just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, Kennedy Hot Springs. The hot springs are gone. 
and the trail to them is gone. Another question you might want to ask is, what are the other challenges? And this is where you really need to get real and look at the people that are going on the trip. Because if you're traveling with small children, that ups the risk uh, by quite a bit, especially if you have children that like to run ahead. I remember we were doing a hike up, um, it was at the Delicate Arch in Moab, and we had some kids run ahead. And by the time I caught up with them and I saw what they had run through and the cables and the drop, um, my whole body was sweaty and cold, and I could not believe that they got ahead of me and that that happened. So, and they had already run through that section of trail, and they were just fine. <laughs> it was a pretty terrifying moment of my life because I was having a hard time getting through that area. Very scary. Uh, not a risk I would like to experience again or have them experience again. Another thing you'll want to look at is if you'll be traveling alone, because that does up your risk. Anything that happens, you'll be dealing with it by yourself. A health problem, some kind of injury, even a piece of equipment that malfunctions or that goes missing, you'll have to come up with a solution for that. And it's best to do it beforehand than in the moment. And then another challenge that you may face is a personal health risk. So if you know you're at an elevated risk for a heart attack or if you have other health issues, those are things you'll need to figure out a plan for before you go out. So you ask all these questions and you look at all these things and it's kind of like that, you know, the book Worst Case Scenario and you start to think, well, then I'm just going to stay inside all day because life is just too dangerous outside and I'm going to go have lunch at McDonald's later on. <laughs> Do I even leave the house? A couple of years ago, you sent me an article that you found from ecology.com and it was all about uh, risk and reward in nature play, looking at children and and the article started out with this statement. Risk averse barely seems to do justice to the expansive fears of our modern American society. Risk paranoid might be more accurate. Wow. And of course, that brings me back to my soapbox. I feel like we do too much to avoid risk and to protect our children from risk uh, in today's world. And the problem then is that, you know, our children grow up not knowing how to manage risk because they've always been buffered from it or protected from it. They can't evaluate risk, they can't measure it, and they can't respond to it. And maybe I'm overstating the point, but we need to be willing to do things that are risky. And truly, no risk, no reward is the way it is. Boy, and if you're going to be risky, outdoor risk is the way to go. Yeah, there's so many other risks that could be so much more dangerous to, to our character. And physical risk, what's great about it is that it's all physical. And yet it has this great emotional benefit as you face it. And I think that segues perfectly into our top five list, which is the top five elements of your risk management plan. If you want to have risk and you want to have that reward, then you need to have a plan set in place. And if there's one thing that we know about risk, it's that we can predict uncertainty with a certain amount of certainty. For sure, we know life is uncertain. Even if you're living the most risk-free or risk-averse lifestyle, there's going to be risk. Opening the mail every day is a risk. So the number one element of your outdoor risk management plan is physical protection. This element of your risk management plan protects you from the elements. So that includes bringing along things like extra clothing, rain gear, shelter, and maybe a small emergency bivy or a mylar blanket. 
And hikers, not just backpackers, but hikers need to apply this advice twice because backpackers, they're already planning to be out for an extended period of time. But hikers are the ones that will sometimes leave the house wearing just shorts and then get caught in weather that they're not prepared for. I follow the Google News search for hikers, and all the time there are these sad articles coming up about hikers that were caught in some kind of freak snowstorm or some inclement weather, and they died of hypothermia. It happens really frequently. So physical protection should be at the top of your risk management plan. And you're right, it's the day hikers that don't plan for that risk, which, you know, just leads us back to this thought that we do a poor job of identifying risk. And so a day hiker thinks, oh, I'll only be out for a few hours. Whereas a backpacker thinks, oh, I'm going to be out overnight, so I need to have everything to survive through the night. In reality, the day hiker needs to realize that even though I plan to only be out a few hours, what if something happens? Am I prepared to spend the night out there? The second element of your risk management plan needs to be navigation. And this element of the plan protects you from the risk of being lost. So it doesn't just have to include a map. Often when you're hiking as a group, um, a predetermined campsite or a meetup point is chosen. And that's part of your navigation plan. If you don't show up at that spot when everyone's expecting you to show up, then your group's going to wonder what happened and they're going to start to plan to go out and search for you. We mentioned the GoTenna in the last episode. They're battery-powered antennas that make it so you can send simple texts or map locations to your hiking buddies on the trail, even when there's no cell signal. And GoTenna has maps that you can pre-download and then send your location to others in the group. That means if you get separated from your group, you can send them your exact location. It's 200 for a pair of Gotennas. We haven't used them, but we would love to hear from someone who has used the Gotenna. The number three element of your outdoor risk management plan is communication. And that's different from communicating within your group. This is people back home. This element of your risk management plan protects you from being invisible or lost to others. So that means that all hikes, short or long, need to begin with a check-in. So that means that you shoot off a text to a friend saying, taking off for Rounder's Loop back before dark. Or maybe, just to put your mom's mind at ease, you let her know that you'll be out of cell range for a day or two. Or you're going to come back to a barrage of worried texts and lots of voicemails. Another common way to communicate your plans is to leave a note underneath the driver's seat. And you could just scratch out that info on the back of an old receipt. And it just needs to say where you're going and what time you expect to be back. And this goes beyond courtesy. This is one of your survival tools. Communication is a way that you manage risk. I was just thinking of a story to differentiate between uh, navigation, knowing where you are, and communication, other people outside, back home, knowing where you are. We have one son who at a very early age became very, uh, let's say, geographically independent. That's a good way to put it. (laughs) And uh, no matter where we went, he was just fine with running out of eyesight of us. I mean, he would just take off, uh, whether it's the grocery store or a hike or anything else. And we'd get all worried not knowing where he was. And the funny thing was that he always knew exactly where he was. And sure enough, after a little bit of time, he'd show up again. And he was never lost. But that was little consolation to us. (laughs) (laughs) 
because we didn't know where he was. And so it is important not only to know where you are, but it's also important that others know where you are. Yeah, some backpackers who are out for weeks or months at a time choose to use a more tech route by using satellite phones or the spot device. People who just go on little weekend trips probably wouldn't need to go that far. These are pretty expensive options. But there is an option, a little survival hack, I guess, if you're in a remote location and you're unable to hike out, say you're injured. And this works even if you're not within cell range. So what you do is you keep your phone turned off to preserve the battery, but you power up for five minutes each day. And what that does is it allows your cell phone to check in with nearby towers and it leaves a trail, an electronic trail of pings for rescuers to follow. And phones do this even if the signal is too weak to make an actual phone call. And some search and rescue operations are now uh, using this concept by bringing their own uh, quote-unquote cell tower. It's not a capable cell tower like that you could make phone calls from. It just acts as a cell tower that your phone can ping and try to connect to. And so even if you're in a remote location, if the rescuers bring one of these devices with them, then when you power on your cell phone and it tries to connect, it's going to try to connect to their device that they're carrying as they try to find you. And now they've got that ping and they can sense what direction it's coming from and start to zero in on your location. The fourth element of your risk management plan is fuel. And this element of your risk management plan protects you from poor decision making. So if you want to be able to take risks, you need to be able to make good choices. And being hungry can really mess with your brain. I love that. Um, it's like a series of commercials that Snickers did. And the tagline is, you're not you when you're hungry. And in the commercial, the person uh, who's the hungry one is replaced by like someone who's just not them, kind of like the opposite of who they would be. And then they take a bite of the Snickers and all of a sudden they're transformed back into themselves. Anyway, it's a really cute series that Snickers did. But it's so true. Food goes a long way in helping you make good choices. So when we say fuel, I mean, first and foremost, we're talking about fuel for our bodies, the food that we take. And I mean, that, that commercial describes me. I'm a different person when I get too hungry. <laughs> And I just can't think as well. Do you want me to respond to that or just let it go? <laughs> or just let it go. <laughs> Whatever you'd like to do. All right. Well, it doesn't matter if you're day hiking or you're backpacking. You should always bring an extra day's worth of calories. Even if it's just four power bars and some hard candy, that makes a huge difference in your ability to think and in your morale. And then, of course, if you're going to be in colder weather, Fuel can make a huge difference in your survival. So food, water, and literal fuel goes a long way in your risk management. And the number five element of your outdoor risk management plan is a second brain. This element of risk management protects you from yourself. There are so many benefits to hiking with a friend or a group of friends. So bringing along a trusted hiking friend means that you can decide with that friend if the risk is worth taking. Like sometimes when it's just you, you start to take some risks that you don't even think about. And so with the group, if someone starts to kind of get out there a little too risky, 
there's always at least someone in the group who can kind of pull them back a little bit and say, wait, let's rethink this. And if you're traveling with another person or a group of people, they can recognize signs in you that you may not be able to recognize in yourself. You know, we've already said you're not you when you're hungry, but also you're not you when you're hypothermic. You know, you have these signs that other people can notice that you may not recognize in yourself and they'll be able to act a lot quicker than you will. Right. When you're hypothermic, you don't know that you're not you. That's the risk. So as you develop a risk management plan for an outing, just remember these key points, physical protection, navigation, communication, fuel, and a second brain. But remember, where there's risk, there's opportunity. So don't completely avoid risk. Just be prepared for it. For today's Summit Gear Review, we will be reviewing the Chico Travel Pack Repeat. You may know Chico as the company that makes those lightweight, really durable shopping bags, and they stuff into themselves. They take up about the size of a fun-sized Snickers. They're so small. They're so cute. Actually, they're probably bigger than that. More like the size of a plum. Plus, that's healthier. So, they're the size of a plum. Okay. Um, but they also have gear that suits backpackers. The Chico Travel Pack is a small, lightweight backpack that's ideal for day hikes, or as a summit pack for quick little spur trips out of your base camp. So this pack is made of 100% post-consumer recycled plastic bottles. And that's where it gets the name repeat from, P-E-T-E being the plastic. So if you want to impress your friends, you call this the Chico Travel Pack Repolyethylene Terephthalate. That's, that's impressive. Of, thank you. I practiced. Practiced for about 15 seconds, about five seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> So all those water bottles that you used on your day hikes, they are now your backpack. This pack has breathable, adjustable shoulder straps. It also has a sternum strap, which because you're just going to be carrying light loads in this pack, it's not really 100% necessary. And they knew that. So guess what they did? They designed it so that the sternum straps could be taken off. Um, it doesn't have a hip belt. It's really, really just meant for light loads. For utility, this pack has a two-way zipper that opens the main compartment. And inside of the main compartment of this pack, there's a hydration sleeve for your hydration bladder. Or you can use it to stuff your extra change of clothes or a map or a book or anything in there. It still provides that extra kind of division of space inside of the pack. And if you are going to use it as a hydration bladder sleeve, then you'll appreciate that there's a hole right under the handle at the very top of the pack where the hose can slip through. On the outside of the pack, there's a smallish pouch. It's actually the lid and it has a zipper on it. And that's large enough to hold like a handful of snacks or your MP3 player and a few other small personal items, like maybe even, you know, your hat or your cell phone. And that's the same pouch that you can use to stuff the entire pack into, and it stores perfectly. Then, and this is my favorite feature because it's something that other day pack makers haven't quite nailed, the water bottle pockets. They're stretchy and they're deep enough to hold your water bottles. So I've used some day packs that, I mean, you barely have enough room to fit your water bottle in and then it's so shallow that you feel like it's going to tip out. But these ones have that kind of lycra stretchy material. So you put your water bottle in and it sinks deep down into the pocket and you know it's not going to fall out. This pack comes in at 7 ounces and it's a 15 liter pack. 
For comparison, on episode 61, we reviewed the Peregrine Ultralight Dry Summit Pack, which is half the weight, only 3.6 ounces, and holds 25 liters. I know the um, the Peregrine didn't have any little pouches that you could put things in. There was nowhere to put your water bottle on the Peregrine bag. So with this bag, the Chico bag, it's, yeah, maybe a little bit heavier, but you have more features which you're always going to be making that trade-off. You do, yeah. And and it's far lighter than, I don't know, like a school backpack. Right. You know, that, that a kid would wear to school. For investment on this bag, it's $30, and it is made with certified fair labor, and it comes with a one-year limited warranty. So again, no scissors, no poking it with a stick. Treat your bag nicely, and it should last a long time. As far as trial goes, I frequently take this bag with me on little day outings where I just need a bag to hold all of my stuff. And I love that it has enough pockets for things, but it doesn't have too many pockets because sometimes when you get too many pockets and you start to lose things and you can't remember which pocket you put your keys in and which one you put your Altoids in and you just kind of, eh, everything just gets lost in pockets. So this one I thought had the perfect space and the perfect number of pockets for the size bag that it is. This might be a dumb thing to explain, but a summit pack is what backpackers who are going to be going to the tippy top of a mountain and coming back down again, it's what they take with them when they don't want to take their full pack. But if you buy a summit pack or you use a summit pack, it doesn't mean that you have to go to the tippy top of a mountain and come back down again. You can just do a spur hike or a little day hike from where you set up your tent. So you don't have to be like this rock crushing alpinist. You can be just a normal person and still use a summit pack. When we go on multi-day trips, I love to go off on spur hikes. And so I always have this dilemma. Do I bring a day pack along on my multi-day trip? Because I like to have something where I can just leave all of my gear in camp, but take a water bottle and a little bit of food and some of my essentials to go off for a few hours on a day hike. So it's great to have an option that's super, super light and really compact. You know, it just stuffs right into itself and can go into my pack, not taking a lot of space or weight. But then I've got that option. And when I find a really tempting spur hike on a zero day, then I'm ready. Well, I feel like the Chico Travel Bag Repeat has all the right features while only being seven ounces, and it's a great option for those little spur hikes that you might want to take on a trip. So you can find all the details in today's show notes at thefirst40miles.com slash 080. For today's backpack hack of the week, it's time to put together your gear list. As you begin any new venture, from oil painting to bonsai, you'll begin to collect a vast amount of supplies, gear, doodads, widgets, and odd bits and pieces. And really, backpacking is no different. And that means it's time to put together your gear list. And I think it's best to do it KonMari style. And what's KonMari style? KonMari. How do you say it in Japanese? Did I say it right? KonMari. KonMari. So KonMari is the name of the method that Marie Kondo created, and she's an organizational expert. Marie Kondo wrote the book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, and her approach is a little bit different than the one that we'll be taking. She has her clients pick up each item in their hand and ask themselves, does this spark joy? And so a lot of times with backpacking, we have all of this gear. It ends up in this big pile out in the garage, 
And backpacking gear has to do more than just spark joy or make you happy. It all has specific logistical utilitarian functions. And, you know, if your hat happens to match your jacket, then wow. What we're going to do to create this gear list is lay everything out on the floor. And this allows you to see gaps in your gear and make better decisions when you're making purchases. And it allows you to manage the gear that you already have. So to create your gear list, get all your gear out that you use for backpacking and lay it on the floor in front of you. And as you lay out each piece of gear, you can choose the elements of the gear that you want to track. So you may want to include the weight of the gear or the season that it's best used for. You may want to include maintenance notes in your spreadsheet or check marks determining the frequency of use. So what you're really talking about here is a gear inventory? Exactly. Knowing what you have. And see, in the past, this has never been a problem for me personally, because I was the only person in the family who had backpacking gear, and it all fit in my backpack, and I had one of each thing. But now it's completely changed. (laughs) You know, now that we have the podcast, and that we have this family of six people, we have all kinds of gear. And I think I've lost track of just what we have. And so this idea of having an inventory... I think it's, yeah, it's time for us to have an inventory. I think this would be an especially meaningful list for an outdoor innovator. You know, someone who's tinkering with gear because they could make a category called things I would change or improvements to the gear. And then they can start tinkering with their own ideas of how to improve their existing gear, either doing modifications or creating an entirely new product. Hey, before we wrap up with the trail wisdom today, um, you know, On a regular basis, we get a message on Facebook or Twitter from a new listener who says, I've been binging on your podcast. I had an airplane flight or I had a long road trip and I listened to your podcast for, you know, X number of hours. But it just struck us that since this is episode 80 and each of our episodes are about a half hour long, then we have probably just about reached the first 40 hours of the first 40 miles. And we have another milestone coming up in the next week or two. That'll be the milestone of reaching 1 million listens on the podcast. incredible. It just blows me away. I can't believe it. Wow. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Edwin Way Teal. He was an American naturalist, a photographer, and a Pulitzer. Pulitzer. Do you say Pulitzer or Pulitzer? I think I've heard it both ways. All right. A Pulitzer Prize, <laughs> not that way. I have not way. heard it that way. Okay. A Pulitzer Prize winning writer. He said, Commonly, we stride through the out-of-doors too swiftly to see more than the most obvious and prominent things. For observing nature, the best pace is a snail's pace. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, then get outside or start planning your next adventure. We'll see you next time on the first 40 miles. the secret to perfect popcorn on the trail. Are we talking about popcorn? Or are we talking about gear list? What?
Did I just... I wonder if I switch things out. That's possible. Yeah, I switch things out. It's that we can brick... It's that we can predict uncertainty with a certain... Um, uh, how can I say this? <laughs>